Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Rockless Shadow by John Blaine. Volume 4. All Uvula Audio books are in the public domain. Chapter 9. The Plain Means Business. It was impossible to stay put with so much tension in the air. Rick and Scotty wandered over to the laboratory and were joined by Dismal, who scampered ahead of them and got underfoot as they walked about, trying to look innocent. Once Zircon growled at Dismal, who, realizing that he didn't belong in the sacred precincts of the lab, ran frantically to Rick for moral support. In the inner workshop, they came across Stringfellow. He was looking at a leather case that rested on top of a bookshelf. As the boys came up to him, he smiled and said, I'd certainly like to own one of these. Rick recognized them as expensive binoculars of a German make. Even the service binoculars that we had weren't as good as those, Scotty said admiringly. Stringfellow slipped them back into the case. They belong to Professor Weiss, he explained. He doesn't like anyone to handle them. In fact, I didn't even know he had them until he brought them down here for something. The three walked back to the central room, chatting amiably. As they entered the radar transmitter section, they saw Julius Weiss bending over an open panel in the rack. He looked up surprised as they entered and stammered, Here's another part of the panel that burns out. I just discovered it. Stringfellow bent low and looked at the coil in Weiss's hand. It certainly is burnt out, he said, and we haven't another one of these on hand. I can run over to Newark and get another, Rick offered. All right, Stringfellow agreed. I think your mother wants some groceries, too, so you can stop in Whiteside on the same trip. I'll get my jacket and see what mother wants, Rick said. Come on, Scotty. As they walked to the house, Rick anticipated his friend's question. No, I don't think there was anything treacherous about that coil. I think it was just burnt out with the rest of the panel. Scotty grinned. I'm getting to be as suspicious as you are. After getting the grocery list from his mother, Rick went to the airstrip. There's Stringfellow, Scotty said. The thin scientist was waiting at the plane. Just in case you didn't know the exact specifications, I wrote them down for you, he said, handing the sheet of paper to Rick. Rick thanked the scientist and climbed into the plane while Scotty pulled the prop through. He leapt in beside Rick, and in a moment they were in the air heading for Whiteside. Far below, the farmlands of New Jersey baked in the July sun. Scotty pointed ahead to the left. Look, there's that barn. It says drink, all right. Rick looked down at it. I'll bet anything that that sign said smoke yesterday. He pointed to the gray car he had seen just to the left of the barn. It must have been changed, but why? Well, it's their sign. They can change it if they like, Scotty said, grinning. Yeah, but why from smoke to drink? Doesn't make any sense. And what is white cream anyway? Maybe a soft drink. Maybe a cigar, Scotty shrugged. Maybe both? Don't ask me. I'm as confused as you are. The Whiteside Airport was under their wings now. Rick banked into the wind and landed. They rolled up to his usual parking place next to the hangar. Mac trotted up. Gas? he asked. Yes, please. Where's Gus? Inside. The mechanic reached for the gas hose as the boys walked into the hangar. 
Gus bent over the engine of a small plane that had been torn down for repair. Well, if it isn't one of the Wright brothers. Gus wiped his face and scowled good-naturedly. Hey, fly boy, where to this time? A little errand, as soon as your hired hand fills the cub. Gus looked out to where Mac was filling the tank. He really goes for that baby of yours. He was giving it the once-over yesterday. Sure, Rick jibed. After all those broken-down kites you people see all day, it must be nice to have a real plane around. He walked back to the plane with Scotty. Mac had finished gassing it up and was standing near the tail. Do you like it, Mac? Rick asked. Mac jerked his head up. Yeah, sure. Wish I had one. He turned and began stowing the gas hose. Let's go, Scotty. Rick started to climb into the cabin, but Scotty stopped him. Your tail door is open again, he said. The tail inspection port was slightly open. Rick went back and closed it, turning the catch with his pocket knife. It must be loose somewhere, he remarked. I'll fix it when we get home. Scotty hung back as he climbed into the cub. Rick looked at him questioningly. I just remembered, Scotty said. I'm supposed to be a guard. I ought to be guarding instead of joyriding. Why don't I go pick up the groceries? I'll get the stuff and phone Barbie to pick me up in one of the boats. Then I'll go home and sleep for a while before I go on watch. Well, it was a sensible suggestion. All right, I'll see you at home then, Rick said. Gus walked from the hangar as he spoke. Say, Mac didn't get into your head, did he? I took him up on leaving that inspection port open, and he said he never touched it. I saw you close it again just now. I'll tell him to lay off touching things that ain't his. Maybe he's trying to hunt up repair jobs for you, Rick grinned. Turn it over, will you please, Gus? The engine roared into life. Rick waved to Scotty and rolled down the strip for the takeoff. Once in the air, he pushed the little plane to slightly better than normal cruising speed. It wasn't long before the Newark airport came into sight. He landed and took a taxi to Cotter's, where he made his purchase. Well, one good thing, they don't seem to use the same trick twice, Rick mused. At least I could get the part this time. He hurried back to the airport, happy that he was making good time. After a short wait for instructions from the Newark Tower, he was again in the air, flying towards Spindrift. The railroad below passed from the crowded Newark district into flat farmlands. Rick glanced around at the scene rolling beneath the cub's sturdy wings. Off to the east, he caught a glimpse of ocean and swung toward it. His altimeter read 3,000 feet. Then something flashed past the corner of his eye. He turned just as a black biplane shot beneath him. Rick banked away. Man, that's crazy, he muttered. Does that guy want the whole sky to himself? The black plane was pulling up in a wild climb a thousand feet away. It was a strange model with retractable landing gear, variable pitch propeller, and all the latest gadgets. Rick had often yearned for something like that, but that class of plane was surely in the neighborhood of $20,000. He noticed the airplane registration number as it climbed and made a mental note of it. Well, he must feel good, Rick said admiringly. He wants to play. The pilot had leveled off, and now he was doing snap rolls. As he came out of one, he pulled the biplane up in a tight vertical bank, and Rick's throat constricted in horror. The black plane was diving straight at his cub. 
Rick shoved the nose of his plane down, wincing as the black biplane screamed by so close that the cub was tossed around in its prop blast. It vanished behind his tail, and he flew straight and level, his scalp prickling. The black plane wasn't through with him yet, though. He expected it to come roaring down past his nose, and he was waiting tensely, ready to fight the cub back to level flight. If the bigger plane got too close, its prop blast would throw the cub into a spin. But the black plane edged slowly into sight, throttling down to Rick's own speed. He watched the blunt radial engine with its disc of propeller creep even with him. He saw the pilot, his face hidden by big goggles, motion with a gloved fist. Rick couldn't believe his eyes. The pilot was imperiously motioning him to land. He shook his head and waved the pilot away, warning him not to come nearer. The black plane's reply was to rock up on one wing and slide close, so close that it almost overlapped the tiny cub. Rick slid away, sweat starting out on his face. The strange pilot gestured again and then passed his hand across his throat. The motion said as plainly as though he had spoken, Go down or I'll knock you down. Rick knew he could do it, too. The black plane could spin him in with hardly any danger to itself. If the pilot were desperate enough, he could take a bite out of Rick's tail with his prop. There was only one thing to do. Rick nodded, accepting the order, then shrugged, indicating that he didn't know where he was supposed to land. The pilot pointed ahead to a grassy stretch surrounded by woods, which appeared to be the only possible landing place in sight. Rick nodded again and put the cub's nose down. As his altimeter slowly spun around to 1,500 feet and then 1,000, he searched frantically for a way out. The black plane was riding slightly behind him and to the right, in position to flash across his nose at the slightest wrong move. The strange plane was flying at near stalling speed, Rick knew. The biplane was a fast job with a top speed of over 200 miles an hour. He estimated quickly. The black plane, being heavier and faster, would take longer to turn or longer to pull out of a dive. Rick wiped perspiration from his forehead. He had a plan. He thought it would work, but he wasn't too sure about it. He glued his eyes to the terrain ahead. The flat land had given way to rolling wooded country. That much was in his favor. He glanced at the altimeter, showing him that he had 500 feet. The black plane was edging closer the pilot motioning him toward the clearing ahead. Rick suddenly put the cub's nose down. Trees flashed up to meet him. He held the dive as long as he dared and then pulled out, praying that the wings would stay on. The small plane wasn't stressed for diving. When he leveled off, his wheels were almost brushing the treetops. He turned his head and caught a glimpse of the black plane vanishing behind his tail. Then he looked straight ahead and concentrated grimly on escaping. Unless the strange pilot were completely insane, he would never try to dive on the cub when it was flying at treetop height. The bigger plane would not be able to pull out in time. Rick kept as close to the ground as the trees allowed, taking advantage of every dip in the terrain. At one time, he saw the black plane flash overhead, and he had to fight to keep the cub's wings level as turbulent air rocked them. But as the miles flowed underneath, he began to breathe more easily. As long as he stayed near the ground, he was reasonably safe. Evidently, the strange pilot valued his neck too much to try tricks without sufficient altitude. 
Rick had read of war pilots hedge hopping to bomb an enemy or to strafe but he didn't know that he had effectively copied a device used by light plane pilots to escape from fast enemy fighters. Spindrift Island loomed across the treetops, the most welcome sight that Rick had ever seen. The black plane flew past a good fifty feet higher than he, and the pilot shook his fist and then banked away. Rick gave a deep, grateful sigh. The stranger had given up the chase. He was safe. In a few moments, the cub was secure on the grass strip at the edge of the island. Rick sat perfectly still for a full minute, trying to gain control of his unsteady nerves. Finally, he reached with shaking hand for the package he had obtained at Cotter's and climbed out. As he did so, he looked up. The sky was empty. Now what did he want with me? He asked himself. He was trying to force me down for something. He looked at the package in his hand. Not for this. They could get one at any electronics store. He shook his head hopelessly and turned toward the house. As he reached the gravel path, he saw Scotty. What's up? Rick called. Everything's quiet, Scotty answered, reaching his side. How'd you do? Not so quiet, Rick said grimly. Our playmates came up into the sky after me this time. Scotty's mouth fell open. As they headed toward the laboratory, Rick gave him a swift summary of what had happened. Listen, this is getting serious, Scotty said. We better do something. Get some help. They stopped in front of the laboratory, and Rick's voice fell to a whisper. Help? From who? We don't know who we can trust here, and my father won't be back for a couple of days. How about the police? Rick looked at him sideways. Do you think they'd take us seriously after that Shields thing? No. We're on our own, Scotty. He walked into the laboratory and saw Zircon and Stringfellow at work and handed the package to the thin scientist. What I can't figure out is why they wanted to force me down, he said to Scotty after they were once more again outside on the path. Beats me. Scotty agreed, unless you had something on the plane they wanted. But what? Not that coil. They could get one anywhere. They walked in silence for a few steps. Then Rick suggested, Let's go down to the plane. I would think you've had your fill of flying for today, Scotty said. I want to look at that tail assembly inspection port, Rick remarked. As they reached the cub's side, Rick walked directly to the little door in the tail and opened it. He slammed it hard to see if it would bounce open, but it stayed fast. Nothing loose about that thing, Scotty commented. Rick scratched his head. Funny. There'd be no reason for anybody to open that on purpose. Scotty examined the door. What's it for? Rick started back toward the house. It's there so you can inspect the cables in the tail assembly. Huh, I thought that's where you carried your lunch, Scotty joked. By golly, it would be big enough to carry a lunch in at that, or something else. Scotty's head snapped back toward the little door. Something else, he blurted. What a pair of dopes we are, that's it. He dived toward the tail, but Rick was there before him. Maybe, Rick said, crossing his fingers. Let's see. 
He pried the little door open and reached inside. Hey, I've got something, he shouted. In the next second, he drew out a folded slip of paper. What is it? Scotty exclaimed, leaping to his side. Rick unfolded the paper with shaking fingers. Two, six, eleven, nine, he read slowly. The rest of the sheet looks just like that, just a bunch of numbers. The boys stared at each other, and then Rick let out a whoop. It's a message! The traitor's been using my plane to send coded messages to his confederates on the mainland! Chapter 10 A Message in Code Boy, what nerve this gang has, Scotty marveled, using you to help wreck your dad's experiments. But how did they do it? Who picked up the messages on the mainland? The two boys stared at each other for a moment, and the same thought leapt into their minds. Mac! Yep, Scotty said. Didn't Gus say he thought Mac was responsible for that door being open? He has to be the one. What do we do? Decode this note or call Gus and tell him to grab that Mac character? Rick looked at the coded note in his hand. It's Greek to me. It'll take some time to make sense out of it. Let's call Gus. In less than 30 seconds, Rick heard the operator ringing the Whiteside airport number. Gus here, who's there? He finally heard the mechanic say. Gus, this is Rick. Listen, where's your new mechanic? He'll be in jail if I can get my hands on him, Gus bellowed. You know what he did? A California plane came in right after you left. A black biplane. I told Gus to service it while the pilot went into town for some chow and... And Mac stole the plane, Rick said grimly. Is that it? How'd you know? He chased me and tried to force me down. Gus made harsh noises into the phone. That's one more thing, then. So help me. If I get that guy, I'll hang him with my own hands. Did he bring the plane back? Yeah. He landed and left it at the end of the runway and beat it into the woods. Did he hurt you, Rick? He tried hard enough. Listen, Gus. Report him to the civil air people. My dad will file charges when he comes back. Right. But I don't get it. What did he want to force you down for? We'll ask him when we find him, Rick said, and rang off. He turned to Scotty. Well, that solves one mystery, Scotty nodded. He didn't get the message out of the cub, so he got panicky and stole that visiting plane. His boss must be a tough customer for him to want to take a chance like that. Yep, but that was a clever trick, Scotty said. Planning a guy at the airport to pick up those notes every time he flew in. That's how the trader notified the gang to buy up all those tubes. And when you had to drive to Newark, they got their chance to do that. Sure, Rick answered. And I'll bet Mac was responsible for that blowout that delayed me too. It would only have taken him a second to make a cut in the tire. I'll have to ask Gus to look at it to make sure. Well, no use crying over spilt milk, Scotty replied. If we can decode this note, we may get him and the rest of the gang with him. Rick looked closely at the number-covered sheet. I don't know beans about codes. How can we decipher this thing? Well, your father has a huge library. Would he have a book on cryptography? On what? Rick asked. 
Just one of my thousand-dollar words, Scotty said, grinning. It means the study of codes. Say, I do seem to remember a book like that. Come on. He started for the library with Scotty close behind. They found a heavy book titled Cryptography for the Student. For a half hour, the two boys studied it, trying to find a code like the one on the paper Rick had found in the plane. No soap, he said finally. There isn't a code anything like this in here. Wait a minute, Scotty exclaimed. Seems to me when I was in the service, I heard of a code. He stopped. Come on, come on, Rick said. Like this one, you mean? Scotty nodded thoughtfully. Well, let me see. It was based on a book. I don't get it. Well, Scotty began uncertainly. With this code, you choose a book, like the dictionary or something. Then all your messages are written in numbers. The first number corresponds to the page, and the second one to the position of the word on the page. Unless you know the book, you can't break the code. Rick was not discouraged. Whoever sent this message from the island here has to have a copy of the book the code is based on, right? Why not just look around? Scotty nodded and closed the book. The boys headed for the scientist's quarters. Nobody seemed to be around. They decided to look in Zircon's office first. Rick had a strong feeling of guilt as he started searching. Scotty stood guard at the door in case anybody happened along. Books. Hundreds of them stared back from the shelves and desks. It seemed useless even to begin a search, but he looked quickly through random volumes, hoping to discover something. As the last book was leafed through, he looked at Scotty, completely discouraged. There's nothing here. Or maybe there is. I can't tell. He indicated the stacks of books. It could be any one of them. All we could do is hope there's something odd about the right one. Let's take a look in Weiss's office. In the little scientist's room, the prospects were even less encouraging. Why do scientists read so much? Rick complained. There has to be a hundred books in just this one case. And all in sets, too, Scotty remarked, reaching for a book. Rick began examining the titles. Here's a set of ten volumes on chemical reactions, and here's another on thermodynamics. All sets. Hey, wait a minute, Scotty said suddenly. Look at this one. He held a thick, red-bound volume in his hands. What is it? Psychiatry, simplified. It's the only book that's not part of a set. Now, I wonder. Rick took the coded note from his pocket and spread it on the desk. We'll soon see. The first number in the series tells the page. That's right. The page is number two. Then, he turned to the second page. The next number is six. That means it's a sixth word, right? Scotty nodded. And look what the word is. Dear, Rick said excitedly. The first word in a letter. Go on, go on, Scotty urged, voice shaking. Rick's eyes flashed from code to book. His hands wrote the words that the code provided. Slowly, a look of confusion spread his face, and when the last word of the letter had been decoded, he dropped his pencil and stared at the translation. It's, it's a love letter, he gasped. Scotty snatched the deciphered note from his hand. Well, I'm a ring-tailed coot. We've run into a double code. You mean the code book led to another code?
Yep, this love letter is coded too. Well, then maybe we can decipher this one from the cryptography book. Come on. The two boys went back to Hartz and Brandt's library. Again, they took the heavy cryptography volume from the shelf, and for a long while, they searched his pages. Nope, Scotty said finally. This code isn't in the book either. Boy, this gang has really taken no chances, Rick remarked. But don't forget where the code led us, Scotty reminded him. To Weiss's office, yeah. I'd say we had the goods on him. Well, don't forget, Zircon looked like a traitor too, Scotty cautioned. Yeah, it's a real mess. But this is something concrete. I think we'd better see Weiss right away. Roger, Scotty said. Get that coded note. Maybe it's in his handwriting. That will be real proof. Sudden realization flashed into Rick's eyes. Holy smoke! I left it back on the desk in his office! They scrambled for the door and ran across the big yard. Rick looked frantically around on the desk where he had spread the coded note. It was gone. Well, if I don't take the fur-lined dunce cap, he moaned. Our only scrap of real evidence, and I handed it right back to the traitor. I think, even without the note, we still got the goods on Weiss. I think we should go find him, Scotty declared. They walked down the office-lined hall. As they came to Zircon's door, they looked in and saw him sitting at his desk reading. Have you seen Professor Weiss, sir? Brick asked. The huge scientist looked up impatiently. I don't keep track of the personnel here, he grumbled. Rick turned away, taken aback by the man's gruff manner. As he did so, he stared straight into Scotty's amazed eyes. Look, Scotty whispered hoarsely. Look at that book he's reading. Rick spun around and stared at the volume in Hobart Zircon's big fist. It was a copy of Psychiatry Simplified. The code volume, Rick gasped. But I just saw it in Weiss's office. Don't you get it? Scotty asked. He has a copy, too. For all we know, every scientist on the island may have one. No, it can't be. We couldn't run into this kind of luck. We better investigate. Come on back to your father's library. They ran from the building and back into the big house. Even before he walked to the main shelf, Rick's eye caught a flash of red binding. It was another copy of Psychiatry Simplified. Rick sank into the leather chair and dropped his head into his hands. Oh, what luck! Any guy on the island could have sent that note, even my dad. But why do you suppose they all have a copy? Well, at least we know how the traitor's been getting his messages off the island, Scotty consoled, and they won't be able to use it again. But how does the gang get in touch with the traitor? Rick asked. Couldn't they just use the phone? They wouldn't dare, knowing Barbie's the operator and loves to listen in on every conversation. Then they'd have to smuggle messages in just like they smuggled them out. And you're playing, maybe. Rick shook his head. No, they wouldn't take chances like that. It has to be some other way. Wigwag, maybe, or flashers. But they'd be too easily detected. Maybe signs, or... Both boys froze at the word sign. The barn, Rick gasped. The sign in the barn. Remember how it was changed so oddly? You're right, and I'll bet we could read one of their messages if we had some binoculars. Weiss's binoculars, Rick exclaimed, rising. Let's go. They entered the little scientist's office. 
and Rick's eyes went to the bookstand where he had seen the glasses the day before. Not here, Scotty said. I'd say those binoculars are with Weiss, Rick said. And I'd say Weiss is at the Tidal Flats. Let's go find him. The path through the Tidal Flats seemed torturingly long, despite their rapid strides. Then, as they turned off the last twist of the path, Rick jerked to a stop, and he pointed silently. There on the edge of the cliff sat a man with his eyes glued to a pair of binoculars pointed straight at the barn across on the mainland. But it wasn't wise. It was John Stringfellow. <laughs> 